this is Sam Black with Drafting Archetypes, and today I'm going to be discussing uh, Ravnica Remastered as a set kind of broadly, not focusing on any particular archetype because this is the only episode I'm going to be doing about this set. As always, the notes are available to follow along at patreon.com slash draftingarchetypes. It's a weird set. I'm not exactly sure what its design goals are exactly. Like, it's definitely leaning into nostalgia, but it plays pretty differently than I think people might expect from Ravnica. Mostly, I think it more it's more of a two-color set, which isn't exactly off theme because Ravnica kind of always promised to be about two colors, but in practice, especially in the sets where you would draft or in the olden days when you would draft multiple different Ravnica sets in the same draft, in practice you would usually play more than one guild. You you would play two or three colors. Or three you would play three usually three colors, but sometimes two. And then when it was like just a, you know, all a single set that had only four guilds, there was kind of more focus on each of them and there are more options for like what each of them did and stuff. It's Definitely a different feel when all 10 of them are in the same set and the fixing is limited. Specifically, there's nothing that makes it easy. There's there's not five color fixing. There's two color fixing in the form of common guild gates and uncommon signets. And then the only other thing really is uh, open the gates, the green card that searches for a basic or gate. With 10 common gates and 10 uh, uncommon signets, it's not that the set's like super low on fixing. Like you would think that you would be able to play three colors with that amount of fixing, and you can. The issue is in this set, most of the best cards are very colored mana intensive. There are just a lot more pips and a lot fewer colorless mana symbols in cards in the format. So you need better mana than you're used to needing. And that's what makes it hard to play more colors. So specifically, uh, the cycle that includes Crackling Drake, the like CCDD or whatever um, uncommon cycle of c cards that cost four, uh, two specific, two different colors, uh, are some of the strongest cards. The commons are not very good. There are some good removal spells and then a few other specific commons that are kind of strong. Uh, but there are only around five commons per color that I think are like cards that I'm happy to have. And then there are other cards that you end up playing because they are broadly on plan, but they're not the kind of thing you'd want before you had a strategy or just kind of in a vacuum. Um, most of the creatures are pretty weak relative to our current standards, but also pretty weak relative to the higher rarity cards in this set. Because the commons are pretty weak, like these sets, I think, are firmly pre-fire design when all the cards kind of got juiced. Um, and so the commons are generally pretty vanilla and easily outclassed by the uncommons. So then the uncommons most of the strength of the uncommons is in cards that have a lot more colored mana and fewer colorless 
uh, mana symbols and their casting costs. And so, like, it's really hard to take advantage of a Crackling Drake or a Night Veil Predator if you are trying to play three colors. So you often want to find the open two-color lane that will give you those powerful uncommons later in the draft. And the open lane exists, right? There are 10 color combinations and eight players at a table. So, and presumably at least two unlucky players are going to be fighting for something. So there are going to be around, you know, minimum two, more likely three or four color pairs that aren't being drafted. And those really, really strong uncommons will go you know, to no one. They'll go late, they'll go around the table and then someone will take one of them when there's nothing that they want in the pack. So what you want to do is ideally find a lane that no one else is in, which you can do when you see a really powerful gold card later than you would expect. But you're probably not already there. So the question is whether you're, you can be flexible enough to move into that space or how to evaluate whether you're supposed to abandon whatever you have and jump into that space. Because that's a question that this set's asking you and because you can't take advantage of the best cards when you get too greedy and try to play too many colors, I think that this set encourages you to sometimes be in a position where you're simultaneously drafting two different decks at the same time, which is not something that I usually do when I'm drafting in general. I usually like to kind of stay open and soft pivot and add things into the decks that I, the cards that I have, which is why I often end up playing more than two colors. I will start with a card that I like and then see another card in a different color and take it and then see another card in a different color and be like, I know how I can make all of these come together. In this set, I think it's much safer to, you know, you start with a strong Golgari card and then you get past a strong is it or even Slesnia card. And, you know, you could take like a replacement level green or black common, or you could take a really high impact gold card in a different color combination. Maybe you take the is it card, maybe you take the Slesnia card, and even if you take the Slesnia card, but especially if you take the Izzet card, you shouldn't necessarily be trying to play all of the cards you've drafted in the same deck. You should say, okay, well, if Izzet seems open, I'm ready for that. If Golgari seems open, I'm ready for that. I'm going to figure out which one of these I am, and I'm just going to take the best card for either deck for the next few picks. And then once I get to, you know, a round pick, like, seven through 10, I'll figure out what's going late and choose a lane rather than trying to straddle. If you've been watching my stream in this set, or if you've ever watched me my stream at all, you might be able to anticipate that I would not be great at following my own advice here. I always want to see if it's possible to do something other than what I think you should do, especially when the thing that I want to do is what I usually like to do. So, um, like, I, I had a draft where I started with uh, Tolsmere um, and then took Expansion Explosion. And the correct thing to do, I think, from there is to, you know, 
look for either Selesnya cards or is it cards, the thing that I did is I started taking uh, Boros and Gruel Signets because I figured I had two expensive cards and I could make it work. I knew when I was doing it that this was not what I expected to be the dominant strategy from here. I just wanted to see if with some strong rares I could draft a multicolor deck. It didn't go well. Um, it actually went very badly, I think. So I think that segues pretty reasonably into a discussion of Signets. Signets are generally perceived as being really strong magic cards. They're cards that people are used to seeing in high-powered cubes, and uh, they're cards that historically have been taken pretty highly in formats where they exist. Also, we, you know, if you've been following Constructed or just recent design, you know that it's rare for them to print two mana artifacts uh, that tap for mana, especially colored mana, recently. And so it's easy to be like, oh, Signets are kind of just above rate. I should prioritize them. But the issue is that I think that they're very risky and overrated in this set because card advantage is super hard to come by. You basically can't get cards that, like, there's compulsive research at common, and that's it. You don't really have other card draw spells. You have a couple of, like, two-mana cantrips. Um, you have, like, Radical Idea, Karoom, um, Blade Brand. But those things don't really, like, make up for the card that you're down when you fl flood out. And you can't really just, like, cut lands one-to-one -one for Signets. Um, so if you have more than one or two Signets you end up with a deck that just has a ton of mana sources in it, and the set doesn't really reward you for that for the most part. There are some rares you could end up with, like Expansion Explosion or Sphinx's Revelation, that can forgive that a bit. It's not impossible to draft a deck that wants Signets, but I think that the decks that want Signets are pretty narrow. You have to like have a real plan that involves like ramping into powerful things. You have to be invested in the mana fixing in a way that I often that I think you should be trying like basically I think there are decks that want signets but they're all decks that I would not recommend drafting um, and so I think it's much wiser to pass signets let other people prioritize them let other people go into those decks and focus more on you know an efficient streamlined two color deck with low cast and cost cards that wouldn't be interested in signets. So I mentioned that the creatures aren't very good, but there are common removal spells that are good. I think that you really want to prioritize common removal spells over common creatures. And I don't necessarily always think that. I often feel like, well, this is an above average creature. The thing that a removal spell is trying to do is remove my above average creature. What if I just draft an above average creature and make them have a removal spell for it? The thing is, this format isn't about above average common creatures. This format is about above average uncommon creatures. And when I say it's about above average uncommon creatures, what I really mean is, is it's about gold uncommons from two different cycles. First, the Crackling Drake cycle that I've already talked about, and second, the Guild Mage cycle. Guild Mages are extremely powerful, especially in this format that has very few mana sinks and very little card advantage. 
it's very normal to run out of stuff to do with your mana if the game goes into the mid or late game. And if one player has more or less any guild mage and the other player doesn't, the player with the guild mage will win. Some of them win more decisively than others, but most of them are very, very impactful. Guild mages have been really important in Ravnica sets that have them in general, but usually there are only three or four guild mages in a set. In this set, there are 10. So they show up way more often and therefore determine way more games. If you have not played with guild mages, it's easy to see them as two mana two twos with expensive and low impact abilities. They're the only mana sinks. They take over games that stall at all. Um, their abilities usually make the game go longer because they make it difficult for your opponent to end the game and they're just really, really good. So you want to take commons that can kill guild mages over commons that can't kill guild mages, with very few exceptions. Like, the, the guild mages are extremely oppressive. I, they are, to me, the defining cards of this format. Therefore, respect them highly, uh, both in terms of drafting to be able to play them and activate them, and also draft to be able to remove them really can't overstate the impact of guild mages. Where signets are overrated, guild mages are almost certainly underrated, despite the fact that everyone who's played any Ravnica set before knows how good they are. Guild mages are also the best, possibly only, like, guild mages are the reason to splash. You will often have, like, a two-color guild mage that is half in your two-color deck, like, You'll draft Golgari and you'll have a Selesnya Guild Mage and you'll play the Selesnya Guild Mage because it's castable and good to activate the green ability. But then because you have it, you would like to have a couple of Guild Gates that give you white mana or maybe play a Plains or something like that so that you can activate the other ability at relatively low cost. I think the primary reason to splash a color, again, just to reiterate, is to be able to activate an off-color or a half-on-color guild mage. And I also like to take guild gates that are half on my color, uh, kind of in the middle of the draft, over unimportant commons to be able to use guild mages better. Like, even though I'm trying to play a two-color deck and I'm not really looking to splash, I still want to take guild gates speculatively just in case they make guild mages better because they're that common and that important. I think it's very easy to think of this set once you've like played it a little or understood how it works to think of it as an aggressive set because it's so emphatically two color. And as I frequently talk about, control decks splash better than aggressive decks. Uh, if you're like an aggressive deck, you really need to stay two color. If you're a control deck, you can branch out more. When you're drafting, it feels like you're drafting an aggressive deck in terms of your ability to splash and your mana requirements, where you need to stay very focused and responsible. But I don't think that you need to be trying to attack. I think it's just that both the aggressive and control decks in this format need to have very focused, responsible mana bases.
you can draft control, but you still want to be two colors. You still want to have cheap cards. Um, you still want a good curve. But I think that a lot of the... I mean, partially just the fact that removal is so much better than threats at common means that you want to draft an archetype where you can prioritize removal really, really highly. And if you have a lot of removal, it can be hard to have an aggressive deck because, you know, like if you want to be able to keep a hand that's like one creature, two removal spells and land, and if your opponent kills your creature, then you aren't putting your opponent on a clock. And so you're going to have to be able to play a late game. So I like a lot of the uh, commons that aren't removal spells that play good late games. I like compulsive research. I really like repeal. I like all the removal. I like um, death touch creatures. Like there are a lot of cards they just play a good defensive game such that I don't feel like the format's necessarily super aggressive or the aggressive decks are best. I just think it's that focused two-color decks with responsible mana and responsible curves are best. I have personally, while trying to draft this way, had some decks that struggled due to being too clunky. I think you really do need to watch your curve like, it's easy to have too many four drops in this format because there are a lot of good fours, and it's just something to be careful about. The lack of mana sinks and draw smoothing means that uh, the format's, like, it's just real. Also, like, between the lack of draw smoothing, the lack of mana sinks, and the uh, abundance of colored mana symbols... It's just really, really, really easy to have a draw that just doesn't quite work out. Like, you just kind of stumble and die because uh, you only drew one of your two colors and all of your cards need both of them, or you drew three of one color and one of the other, so you can't cast your thing that costs two of each. Oh, the other thing is the set has a lot of expensive cards that don't really seem castable because... Like, you, it's just really hard to ever hit, like, seven or eight mana when there's not card draw and there are no bounce lands. Um, I feel like the original Ravnica bounce lands are, I think, understood to be kind of too powerful. Like, they would be better than all the other cards, so it would be weird to have them instead of gates. But without them, I think that a lot of the casting costs are just not achievable. So... To me, I think the format would have been a lot more fun with the Bounce Lands. I think more decks would be gold because the, the Bounce Lands gives you both colors at the same time instead of one color or the other. And you'd be able to like play more of the impactful stuff and it would have more of a unique identity. But uh, that's, that's not the direction the set went with. Um, and so as a result, I think you want to avoid the expensive cards and really just draft responsibly is kind of the key theme of this set to me very kind of basic old school creatures you know common creatures don't do anything so take removal spells over them so that you can answer the uncommon creatures and try to position yourself in a lane where you're going to see a lot of removal and uncommon creatures and that means being flexible uh there are also some really 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 overpowered rares compared to what else is going on which their existence interacts awkwardly with attempts to be flexible so you need to weigh okay how great is this rare 
how hard do I need to just like force it versus am I supposed to move into a lane that's clear that uh, is open? And that question's very hard and you're going to get it wrong sometimes. And uh, I, I think that there are just a lot of ways that a lot of ways to lose in this set. I might be saying that partially because I personally haven't had great results, but I've also been kind of trying to experiment more than trying to win and might go better with less experimentation. But uh, it does just feel like between the mana being awkward, that being hard to mitigate, and the uh gap in power level between cards i think it's a relatively high variance format i think that's basically what i have to say about the set big picture i'm sure that people are going to want to know about the strength of various guilds it's really hard to know that uh like i i've played around 10 drafts which you know is around enough to draft each of the guilds if I draft each guild one time. It's not likely the way that it's going to break, and drafting a guild once doesn't really tell me how good it is, and there isn't uh, data. This set's not on Arena, so we don't have 17 lands. So I, I can't tell you how good each of the color pairs are. I like what most of the black guilds are up to personally, but uh, really, I do think that so much of the strength is in getting the specific gold cards that it's much better to just like be in an open lane rather than being like, oh, I hear Azorius is good. I'll force Azorius. I think this set in general is extremely punishing of trying to force anything because I think a lot of the decks... There are a lot of possible decks that exist that rely very heavily on one or two specific like commons and you won't always see them. And if you don't get them, then you can't be that deck regardless of like what your how highly you would have taken it if you did see it. And you want to be able to take the power level outliers that you see and you want to be able to move into the open lane. And so um, I think this set allows forcing way less than most modern sets. Uh, and, and by forcing, I mean going into the draft with a heavy bias about which colors you might like to be or what plan you might like to have. You really need to let the picks, the packs, the cards available steer you to a significant degree. With that, I am going to thank uh, my newest patron, Eric. Thank you very much for the support and uh, turn it over to chat for questions. And if anyone would like to support the podcast, uh, be sure to check out patreon.com slash drafting archetypes to do that and see the benefits that we offer and stuff like that. So is this a set where you want to draft the hard way even more than usual? So this is a reference to an old Ben Stark article, Drafting the Hard Way, that talks about uh, drafting the easy way is you just like take a card and then kind of draft the color that it is, uh, put blinders on earlier in the draft rather than later, where drafting the hard way is more about reading signals and staying flexible and finding the open lane. 
I think the biggest problem with this article is that it sets up the existence of a binary that I don't really believe in. I think that basically all drafting is one step at a time weighing the advantages of one option against the advantage of it is of another option and you know the stronger the card that you first pick is the more you should commit to that first pick and i think that that still applies in this set like i said i think that there are some very significant power level outliers where if you take it you should be very willing to fight for it and so in that way you know sometimes you should draft the easy way but you also you know finding an open lane the rewards are very real and so later harder pivots than i would often be interested in in modern sets are worth considering or doing here so as far as viewing it more as a spectrum, thinking the easy way means you commit faster relative to the strength of your card than the hard way. There's a lot of debate about whether there is like a right way to draft and whether that, whether if there is, whether that's meaningful. I mostly land on there isn't a universally right way to draft, at least not that any player can meaningfully engage with and which pick is right for you to take really strongly depends on how you're going to play the games and which of like what pick you would make in each hypothetical spot that is likely to come up in the rest of the draft. And so you really need to like know yourself to make the right pick for you. As far as where you should be on the spectrum of committing more or less to a pick, there's a right amount. It might be the right amount for you. It might be the right event, amount universally. But like the card that you have, taking another card that works with that versus taking a like gamble on a card in a different color, that's just a calculation that can be weighed independent of thinking about it as a hard way or an easy way or a depth of connection. So I, I guess that's just to say that I really lean toward rather than thinking about it as I will commit X amount, you just have to do the calculation fresh on each pick in each moment. What kind of aggressive common slash uncommon only openers have I done or my opponents done that felt like something powerful and replicable? So at low commonality, what are some like meaningful synergies that come up? I mean, so there's like really low impact stuff. Like if you play a battalion guy, you can play like you can go turn one Boros recruit, I believe is the name of the that might be the wrong name. Whatever the, the one one for white with battalion that gets plus two plus two. You could follow that up with Krenko's command or Fist of Ironwood so that on turn three, Boris Elite, you can attack with a five with a three three and two one ones. 
that'll sometimes work out to do something strong, but other times your opponent will just play a 2-2 and you won't really want to attack with the 1-1s anyway. You'd be pushing a little bit of damage, but losing a 1-1, it's just not very good. You can also prioritize haste creatures that cost 3 to turn on your battalion, but again, kind of feels like it needs something to go right for it to matter. So that's, that stuff is like not super impactful but like there are light aggro synergies there i think that that kind of describes how i feel about all of the synergies at common and uncommon i i don't think this is like a very high synergy set in that way i do think that each of the guilds kind of has a plan and some cards work much better like there are some green cards that work way better in selesnia than they do in the other green guilds or whatever but i think it's actually kind of like what i was talking about with the way that like type synergies develop in lost caverns vixlon where any single piece is pretty low impact but there are enough of them collectively that they meaningfully drive you down a path and I think that in Ravnica, it's similar, where we're not talking about, like, horseshoe crab with hermetic study type common combos. We're just talking about, like, these, this block of cards all works into this game plan. This is my game plan, so I want cards from this block of cards rather than, you know, A plus B combos or something. Maybe a little reductive, but with this set and cons recently... How do you think pre and post fire limited sets compare? So fire design gets a lot of criticism for, I think early on, there were some growing pains in terms of properly balancing cards and constructed. And there were a lot of necessary bands after a long time where bands weren't necessary. And I think that there have been times where there are commons that are way too pushed relative to the other commons. I'm talking about Streets of New Capenna. But I think that in general, the goal of making commons more interesting and meaningful makes limited better for the same reason that people like cube drafting. In cube drafting, you see a lot more cards that like are dynamic and high impact and fun and interesting to play with. And after having played with slightly more interesting, slightly more text having, slightly more powerful commons, I don't really prefer personally the world where the common removal spells matter because they can answer uncommons and rares and the common creatures are just kind of filler uh, because they don't really match up to the uncommons or rares or really do anything so personally i like the change to add power to commons that's my answer to that question more on drafting say picks one and two you take strong cards in different pairs pick three you see a strong card in a third pair do you take it over a placement level card that goes with pick one or two yes you have uh i i think Pretty clearly, you know, if you start with Frackling Drake and then the best 
blue or red card in the pack, like your options are like Radical Idea and Scorched Rasalka, which is not an unrealistic situation. Or you could take Golgari Finebroker. So you're like, all right, maybe blue red's not going to materialize. I'll take the fine broker and now I'll just figure it out later. Pack three, you see lightning helix with, you know, there's maybe like a siege worm and, you know, a, a bunch of other just like random common creatures. Uh, I think it's very reasonable to take lightning helix there. And again, just like, Despite the fact that the set has a lot of weak cards, because the set has a lot of weak cards, it is possible to be struggling for playables, especially to maybe like not have enough playables at the right points in the curve and end up with a clunky deck, something like that. But you still want to be really maximizing your chance of having exceptionally good cards. And so where you're only two picks in, you're not very committed to anything. Um, you're not giving up a lot of picks by abandoning those two that you have. Taking a third shot to find another open lane, uh, I think is better than taking a card with very low upside. Like at a certain point, you need to make a decision. And once you're like five picks into a direction, it's pretty hard to pivot into another lane entirely. So you don't want to like, you know, if you're, if the, if you ask the same question, but it's pick six, my answer would be pretty different. I think what I haven't talked about enough actually is that I think you want to try pretty strongly to draft monocolor where possible, even if you start with a gold card. So you might start with like the green, green, white, white, uncommon. And then second pick, you're looking for a strong green card or a strong white card or a strong green white card. You take a strong white card. Third pick, I'm considerably more interested in taking another strong white card than a green card, even though I have two picks in green white and I'd like to be green white. I'm willing to give up a small amount of power to take a white card over a green card so that halfway through the pack, I maybe have a lot of white cards and a green, white, gold card. But now if I find a white gold card that's any other color, I can shift into that and still get to use all those white cards I took. So I don't need to abandon as much stuff and I'm more flexible later to a wider range of open lanes. So I think there's a lot of flexibility available if you can draft around one color and then, you know, there's a good chance that one green lane will be open. And if you can take mono green, you can just find that open lane and still get to use all the cards you had rather than, you know, if you'd been drafting Selesnia and then you find out that like Gruel was open and you have to abandon too many white cards or your gold cards or something like that. That makes you wonder, are there many secret gold cards in the set? I think that there are cards that strongly prefer some guilds to other guilds, uh, like Fist of Ironwood uh, and Krenko's Command. These cards that make 1-1s are a lot better if you have some reason to care about 1-1s. If you're convoking or mentoring or have uh, 
battalion or have a way to sacrifice them. But there are a lot of different ways that you can do it. So it's almost more that there are some lanes that they happen to not work well in rather than it only works well in this one lane. And I think that, you know, if you have a bunch of green cards, you can kind of like take green cards that have green synergies and kind of be able to make that package work whatever pair you end up in. In that example, do you try to find a Slesnia Guildgate or a different Guildgate more? I would always try to find a Guildgate that matches more of the cards that I already have. Even if I pivot out, it could still be helpful and, and like might let me use a card that I already had. And most likely I'm going to stay the colors that I am. And then because the color requirements are so hard, it might help meaningfully to be able to just fix in my two color deck. So uh, I'm going to, you know, put some weight in any guild gate as a speculative pick, but I'm always going to prefer a guild gate that matches more of the cards I already have to one that matches less. How do you think counter spells would do in this set? Weaker commons, nearly impactful rares, make me think they'd play better than in sets where you could get run over if you missed a few early drops. I do think you can get miss run over if you've missed a few early drops, but I also think that the counter spells are reasonable. Uh, Remands felt pretty good. I had a deck with a lot of sinister sabotages that was pretty cool, but needed a few more ways to impact the board. Quench has been solid, even if it's a card that I personally don't like. I mean, it's been reasonable against me. Like, my opponents have countered my spells, and it has been bad for me. I don't know how often my opponents have had quenches that they couldn't use because they go dead late, but I, I do think, you know, counter spells are totally reasonable in this set. I do think that when evaluating guild gates you do want to think about specifically which guild mages they would be enabling how from your spot some guild mages are better than others some colors of some guild mages abilities are better than others and so you want to think about like what is the set of guild mages i could see and how helpful is this land to them this gets easier when you already have some guild mages so i'm going to wrap it up here to recap Try to find the open lane. Try to focus on drafting a single color as much as possible without giving up any very high impact cards to maximize your ability to pivot for as long as possible. Don't prioritize fixing too highly. Prioritize having a mana base that doesn't need much fixing more highly. Do take and draft around guild mages as much as possible. Uh, do very highly prioritize removal spells, especially removal spells that will allow you to answer guild mages. And good luck navigating how much to commit to gold rares uh, or other like gold cards that you take early when it's not clear that the color combinations open. It's a very hard question to solve. Do try to make sure that you have a pretty good curve. Also, while I like uh, decks that have good late games and I like the defensive options that are available, I think that there's a lot of equity available from punishing people who stumble in this format. So it is nice to draft decks that can have aggressive starts when appropriate. Because like some stumbling does 
happen. Your opponents are going to have some bad draws and being able to capitalize on that's really valuable. I think that's uh, most of what I have to say about this set. So thanks everyone for listening. And next week I will be back with a first look at MKM murder at murder something Karlov Manor. Anyway, looking forward to it. Uh, so thanks for listening and I will be back next week. All right. Bye for now. Prepare for light speed.